0: Our God and Father, Lord, we praise You. We honor You and we bless You, God. You are amazing. Lord, we stand in awe of You. We thank You, Father, for our life, the gift of life. God, we thank You. We thank You that You have created us in Your image. God, that we could experience and enjoy the goodness of your character the privilege that we have to know you and to love you through the precious blood of Jesus God, we thank you we ask today, Father as we look into your word that you would teach us that you would lead us and guide us into all truth Father, that you would Strengthen our faith. (coughs) Encourage us, God. Console us in our suffering and in our grief. O Lord, give us good hope in your soon coming kingdom as we look forward to the day when you will return and destroy sin and death forever. And we look eagerly to that day, Lord. We thank you for the privilege and the freedom that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word. We ask that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, with that, we've been talking about the doctrine of justification. And when we started talking about the doctrine of justification, we spent some time talking about the Protestant Reformation. And the reason for that is because of the struggles and the controversies that took place during the Protestant Reformation really highlighted the essentials of the doctrine of justification. And... Of course, we understand that the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, is at the heart of the gospel. Of course, we're in a year-long series here on the gospel, but in understanding what is at the very heart of the gospel, we must understand the doctrine of justification. And if you will, it's got... More than just one element. There's quite a few things to it, and so if you will, we are spending quite a bit of time talking about what is justification. And um, in order to do that, of course, we went we went through the Protestant Reformation and we talked about the things that the reformers were really protesting against the church in their day, namely in the 16th century when it all kind of came. To, to a head and and, and all the controversy broke broke loose and what was really being protested was really was w- what was at the heart of the Christian faith and so we looked at uh, uh, what really their protest was which has been defined as the five solas <clears throat> the five solas of the Protestant Reformation they're on page 98 where if you will, the Reformers clarified for us what was the essential message of Christianity and what was at the heart of the Christian faith. And so, if you will, we had the five solas, and of course we went through those in, in some detail. And um, before we move on and discuss more about justification, I, I, I want to kind of convey this point to you about the five solas, Okay. The five solas clarified for us really what was essential to the Christian faith, what was essential to the Christian gospel. And so the important thing is to consider a few things. How is it that the church had gotten so far away from the essentials of the historic Christian faith? how is it that the church could get so far away from the person and the work of Jesus Christ and being focused on Him and on what He has done? And I would like to suggest that this is the work of the enemy in the church. This is something that we have got to fight for, contend for, struggle for in every successive generation. Okay? And so... We're always and constantly trying to clarify what the essential message of Christianity is. And at any point in time, and any generation in the church, we can stop and look at the popular cry. Okay? And what we're going to see is these essentials that are defined in the five solas being sacrificed, being deluded, being obscured, you know? And here's the thing, you know, the devil doesn't show up with his pitchfork and say, Oh, I don't believe those five solas. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he puts it in a nice, pretty little package. You know? And, And so it's important for us to continually return to these fundamentals, to these essentials. And to understand in our minds as Christians family, you know, it's, this isn't just the thing that saved us. This is the thing that sanctifies us. This is the thing that makes us holy. This is the power to live a holy life. Is to remind yourself daily of the gospel. The gospel sets us free from the law of sin and death. And it gives us a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving that's eager to serve God and eager to do what is right. It gives us a heart that hates sin and loves God. Are you with me? And so we have to be constantly reminded by it. When, when we look at the cross, there is, there is a means of grace in the sight of the cross that continually and constantly washes away our sin. What I mean by that is when you ponder as a Christian the goodness of God in forgiving your sin, and giving his life to die for you. And you look at the miracle that took place on Calvary. And you are again uh, filled with the knowledge of what God has done for you and how he has cleansed you and washed you. Okay, That is a thing that just cleans the conscience. It cleans the soul. It takes away your guilt. It reminds you of God's free grace and God's great love for you. Are you with me? And so we have to continually remind ourselves of these essentials, okay? And so uh, that's why the title at the top of page 100 is, The Main Thing. Okay, so here's what I want to tell you, Heritage Christian Fellowship, okay? But not just you, but you, every single Christian, right? And not just you, every single Christian in Heritage Christian Fellowship, but the church... Catholic, universal, on the face of the whole earth. We need to hear and understand what is the main thing. Are you with me? Amen. So, just in your mind as a Christian, when you think about what is the main thing in Christianity, you know, what comes to your mind, okay? And so, what I'd like to think comes to your mind is is really Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the main thing, <laughs> right, the, the volume of the book is written of him the entire Old Testament points to him the entire New Testament is a record of his person and his work amen yeah. and so if you will the person and the work of Jesus is the main thing or we could sum that up by just saying the gospel the gospel is the main thing Okay, And, of course, that's in its most simplest form. There's much more to it than that, right? Certainly, there's important parts of that that aren't necessarily right up front expressed in the term the gospel. Like, for instance, the great and foremost commandment is to love God with all of your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength, right? And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Those could be expressed as the main thing, if you will. But the fact of the matter is, is that when we get away from understanding what the essentials are, when we get away from understanding what God's goal and his purpose in history is, when we stop thinking with the mind of God about our circumstances in our world, listen, we get distracted with all kinds of sundry things. Mm -hmm. Amen? Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to encourage you to not only know what the main thing is, but To keep the main thing, the main thing. Are you with me? That's how we keep from straying off down some crazy path. Okay? Which we all have a tendency to want to do. For various reasons. Okay? But we need to keep being reminded what the main thing is. So let's talk about the main thing. It is... No small thing that these five solas were given in order to clarify the essentials of Christian teaching. They show us what is at the heart of the gospel, the message of the person and work of Jesus Christ. They teach us exactly what is central to the Christian faith and what is required to have an orthodox or genuine profession of the historic, what the true church has always maintained, and apostolic, what Jesus and the apostles taught, Christian faith. Okay? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying the five solas, okay, they tell us what the essentials of Christian teaching are. And they teach us what, what it is to have an orthodox or genuine profession. Okay? I'm using these terms. Orthodox. Somebody tell me, what do I mean by orthodox? I'm sorry? Straight. Okay, straight teaching? Straight teaching, which really has what as its character in nature? Truth of the word. It's genuine. It's the real thing. Right? It's the real thing. It's the right thing. As opposed to the unreal thing and the wrong thing. Are you with me? It's orthodox. It is what is said to be according to the Historic and apostolic Christian faith. Okay? So what do we mean when we say historic? Well, the historic Christian faith is what the true church has always maintained. Are you with me? And the apostolic Christian faith is the faith that the apostles taught us. Number one, the apostle from heaven, which is Jesus right and number 2 his disciples save paul right who was one abnormally born right but the point is the the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints through the apostles okay that faith that body of christian teaching faith in this sense the body of christian teaching is summarized in the five solas. Okay, and so what we're saying is is that that is the essentials. Okay, and and so that means that that is what is essential. It's the main thing. It's what the church has always maintained is the main thing because that's what Jesus and the apostles taught us. Okay, and that is the standard. For orthodoxy. The standard for orthodoxy is what the historic and apostolic church has always taught as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Amen? Isn't that what Sola Scriptura tells us? Right? Are you with me? Okay, so then. um, It's important that, um, that we understand then what these five solas are. Okay? They're simply clarifying for us what the essentials are. And if you don't want to call them the five solas, fine. It doesn't really matter what you call them, does it? But if you understand that these are the essentials of what we believe as Christians, right? And we know why we believe them, then we're listen, we're fully equipped to be everything that God has called us to be. Amen. Okay then. So then in other words, these five souls teach us what the main thing in Christianity really is. How could the church have gotten so far from the central teaching about Christ and salvation? Well, the truth is, we are in a constant struggle to reaffirm the truth of the gospel to each successive generation because our enemy, the devil, is waging war against the truth of the gospel in every generation. Hear me out. The devil is waging war against the truth of the gospel in every generation, in every culture, okay? He's got all kinds of tricky tricks up his sleeve, okay? And he'll do anything he can to cloud the message, to obscure the message, to change the message, to pervert the message. (laughs) The last thing he wants is the gospel to be clarified, Okay, because you see, when it it comes through crystal clear, then we understand it. And it's through the understanding of the gospel that God regenerates people's souls and turns them into children of God by his Holy Spirit. You see, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Are you with me? So, this enemy, the devil, see, he's a liar. You know what liars do, right? They lie, which means they (laughs) violate the truth. Okay? You see what he's doing is he's waging war against the truth by lies and deception. He is always reinventing old lies into new ways to deceive us and obscure the true gospel. He represents himself as a beacon of light and truth with false prophets and teachers but their message is only a bit of truth, perverted into a devious lie, which robs the gospel message of its power to save. Okay? And so, you know, here are some principles about how the devil does this. 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15, Paul there writing about the false apostles. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers distinguishing themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose ends shall be according to their deeds. You see what Paul is saying about the guys who are false apostles? This is what he says. He says they masquerade. They put on a mask and they parade themselves through as apostles of Christ, as ministers of truth, as gospel ministers, as servants of righteousness, when in fact he says they are deceitful workers. You see that? So here's how the devil shows up. He doesn't show up with his horns and his pitchfork. Okay? He shows up in a nice, clean shirt with a nice, fancy tie, right? And he's sometimes, many times, toting a Bible, right? Those can be just as dangerous as the kind that don't tote a Bible, right? Because it's all about what happens when they open it up and they start explaining what it means, right? Because after all, don't we all know, no one can understand the Scripture, you need a special Sermon of Righteousness for that. You need a prophet from God, don't you? No, 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 no. Remember what the book says? You have an anointing and all of you know the truth. That's what the Bible says, right? The Holy Spirit lives in you if you're a Christian. And He guides you into all truth. So that, John says, you need no man to teach you. But you are all taught by God. Amen? Amen? You with me? Right? The scripture is clear. We can understand it. All we have to do is, remember what Sola Scriptura says. Remember? Sola Scriptura says, we don't need a special priest to explain the Bible to us. But God's word is perspicuous. Did I say that right? (laughs) It's clear. We can understand it. Okay? We don't need a prophet from God, let me tell you. What we need is simply a heart that wants to receive from God the Holy Spirit who's submitted to His will, right? And is eager to learn His truth. That's what we need. We need a right heart disposition and we need to go to the right place to learn. That is, we go to God. To Jesus, the living Word. And there, He communicates God to us. Amen? By His Holy Spirit. Revelation comes right through the Word by the Spirit. Okay? Okay? All right, so then. Um, <clears throat> but what, what happens is the devil is waging war against the gospel. He's waging war against the truth. And, and, and furthermore, he's parading around as a servant of the truth. He's parading around describing the nature of truth and describing, you know, I mean, you know, he goes to great lengths to confuse God's people, he goes to great lengths to obscure the gospel. He goes to great lengths to deceive people concerning the truth of God. Okay. As we look around in our world, just as with any period of church history, we can see perversions of the gospel by false prophets and false teachers abounding everywhere. This has been true ever since the first century when the apostles contended for the truth of the gospel in their own generation. Of this fact, our Lord... And the apostles strictly warned. Okay? So here's part of the Christian teaching. It's this: a warning to be on, to beware of false teachers and false prophets. Right? Jesus said, Matthew 7, beware of false prophets. Right? Because they are wolves who come to you in what? Sheep's clothing. Right? He says, by their fruit you will know them. Right? But Jesus, even Jesus telling us how the false prophets come, right? They're really wolves, but they come just like a sheep. They look like a sheep. They act like a sheep. They smell like a sheep, but they ain't a sheep. They're a wolf. You know what wolves do, right? They devour sheep. Okay? It's not a pretty picture, let me tell you. Jesus says in Matthew 24:11, he says, "Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many." Peter tells us in 2 Peter <coughs> chapter 2, verses one through three, he says, "But false prophets also arose among the people." He's talking about the people of the Old Testament, just as there will also be false teachers among you." who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep." You see, Peter is warning the church that there are going to be false teachers among the church. And he's telling us then to be mindful of them. Jesus is telling us many false prophets will arise and deceive many people. Okay, John the Apostle warns us of these same things in his uh, epistles. Right? The, the epistle specifically of 1 John is loaded with admonitions for us to beware of the antichrists who have gone out into the world. right? Who deceive and who tell us a lie. Look what Peter says about these false teachers. He says, There will also be false teachers among you. Listen to what he says they do. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. You understand? They'll secretly introduce destructive heresies, so they don't show up and say, "Hi, oh, I'm your false prophet today," and here's my latest heresy, right? They secretly introduce it. How do they do that? It's a deception. It's like this family. It's like it's like uh, uh, what's that? Uh, what's Andy Griffith? He's got that little nephew guy, Opie. It's like Opie walking with his bamboo pole down to the fishing hole, and he gets down there and. He takes out his pole and puts in a hook and sticks it in that worm and tosses it in the water. Right? Opie is a deceiver. <laughs> Parading around as fish food. You with me? When that fish comes up and he sees what Opie's been cooking up, he says, "Man, that's dinner." I've seen dinner a hundred times and that's it. Right? The problem is the dinner's not the worm. The dinner is the fish. You with me? That's how false teachers work. It's a deceitful, they're deceiving us into thinking that they're giving us the truth, but secretly they're introducing a what? A destructive heresy false teaching that destroys. That's what a destructive heresy is. You understand? How do they do that? They tear down the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They tell you the work of Christ is not sufficient to save you. And you have to do all these other things to be acceptable in the sight of God. If they can get you to believe that, family, listen, they turn your life into an offense to God. Because you stop trusting in and relying upon Christ and you start trusting in and relying upon yourself. Right? Let me tell you, that's empty. That's as empty as it gets. And it's not acceptable to God. Are you with me? But so the point of the matter is they secretly introduce these heresies and they're destructive. He goes on, he describes, many will follow their sensuality. You see, they're very sensual. They got fancy ways of packaging their stuff. Sounds good. Man, it sounds so good to the flesh. I mean, the the, the mind of the flesh hears what a false teacher says and it's led. It wants to follow that path. It sounds so good. Are you with me? But you see, the flesh is sold as a slave to sin. And sin is what entices the flesh. But the spirit is at enmity with the flesh. And the truth is at war with the lies that the flesh believes. Are you with me? And that's why it's incumbent upon us to be very discerning. Because, man, these guys, they come with sensuality. But you know what? Because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. You know what comes to my mind when I read that verse? It's Christian television you got these false prophets that are parading around as angels of light, spewing out their lies and their heresies, secretly introducing them. But not only that, they're a manifestation of the so-called evangelical church to the world. And so people look at that, the big purple hair this big, you know, and they're saying, that's Christianity? And you know what? God's name is profaned among the Gentiles because of that kind of representation of who He is. Are you with me? Because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. I was on an online forum one day and was having a little discussion and so I thought I'd fire up the place and told them all about (laughs) divine providence. It's not a forum that has anything at all to do with religion. (laughs) Man, I got about 20 posts right after that, you know. And uh, um, they, of course, they were all hanging me, putting me on my cross to crucify me. Or should I say, putting me on Jesus' cross to crucify me. And uh, one of the posters writes back some big long thing about Jim Baker and the scandals of this and that. You know, I mentioned that God is in control of the elements and that he's Divinely providential over his world. <laughs> Next thing I know, I'm identified with Jim Baker in the Christian scandals. <laughs> you know why that is? Because, because because of false prophets, right? The way of the truth will be maligned. You understand? And look, if the devil can get somebody thinking, man, don't go near them Christians, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Yep. Right? then he's effectively inoculated people from hearing the gospel. Why? Because the Christian's are the only one preaching the gospel. You with me? So he's got a very definite purpose in maligning the truth. Okay? So this is exactly what happens. These kinds of things is how the devil wages war against the truth in many, many other ways which we have not mentioned. Therefore, it is incumbent upon each new generation. That's you and me, family. Okay? Okay? To clarify and to preach the gospel with conviction and with clarity. You understand? To to make sure that we preach the gospel as if it is something that is of grave importance. And number two, that it is clear. That it's not in any way obscured by, by some misunderstanding. Okay? but that the gospel is clear, that we're clearly describing what the essentials of the historic and apostolic Christian faith really are. Are you with me? It's incumbent upon each new generation. We are this generation of the church. Are you with me? It's important not only to know the truth, but it's important to communicate the truth clearly. Amen? Because we are the church. We are Eve, the mother of all the living. You understand? The children of the church are the church of the next generation. You understand? It's through us that God is preaching the gospel and bringing His children into the kingdom of God. Are you with me? Lest we think that we will not succumb to the deceitfulness of Satan and his schemes of deception, we must keep the main thing the main thing. We must continually test ourselves in the things we believe in order to always maintain the purity and simplicity of the gospel. Okay, here's what I'm saying. We need to work at maintaining the purity of the gospel. We need to work at maintaining the simplicity of the gospel. You say, well, Sean, you've been teaching for six months about the gospel and you're telling us all this stuff, man. It's rather complex, isn't it? Well, as I described in the very beginning, it's simple and it's complex, but in its most simple form, family, it's a, it's a very clear thing for us to see, and what I'm telling you is the five solas boil that thing down and make it crystal clear. Are you with me? And so it's those essentials that they were putting forth for us that we as Christians need to have in our minds as the essentials of the historic and the apostolic Christian faith. Okay? Okay. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3 and following, he says, But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Okay? So here's Paul. He's telling the church, look, I don't want you to be deceived like Eve was. Right? I don't want you to be taken away from what, Paul? From the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He says cuz these false apostles are running around and you know what they do? They bring another Jesus. They bring a different spirit. They bring a different gospel. <coughs> you understand? The gospel they preach is not the true do, uh, the true gospel. It's not the apostolic gospel. It's not the historic orthodox gospel that the church has always believed, which comes out of the scripture. You with me? It's a different gospel. And it preaches a different Jesus. Okay? And let me tell you, it's a different spirit. It's not the spirit of freedom that God sets us free because of Christ. It's a different spirit altogether. It's a spirit of pietism, or it's a spirit of legalism, right? You're never good enough. Tie up a heavy load and put it on your back so that your religion is twice as heavy as your sin was. Are you with me? I used to say all the time, I'm not sure if it's still good, maybe some of you can tell me, if your burden ain't light, it ain't right. Right? Because that's what Jesus promised. He said, Come on to me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my burden is light. Are you with me? See, Jesus sets us free, family. He sets us free from condemnation and from guilt. That's the spirit we receive from Christ. The gentle, healing hand of the Master who is mighty to save, who is also lowly and meek and humble of heart. Amen? He's our healer. He's our Savior. He doesn't tie up a heavy load and stick it on our back and whip us with a whip and say, now carry it, you dog. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. You with me? The Jesus of the Bible says... Neither do I condemn you. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. See, Jesus is a Savior. That's what He does. He saves us from sin. And that's the Jesus of the Bible. And that gives us a crystal clear crystal clear means then to understand who another Jesus is and what a different spirit is and what another gospel is. Are you with me? This is why it's imperative for us to understand the gospel. This is why it's imperative for us to understand who the person of Jesus is and what his work really is and what it really means. Are you with me? Because this is where the devil is waging war. This is the thing he is trying to obscure. The person and the work of Jesus So that John writes in 1 John 4 and following, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, Jesus, he warned, he said, many false prophets will arise and deceive many people. By the time John got here and wrote his first epistle, many false prophets have gone out into the world. You with me? They're everywhere. They're abounding all over the place, parading around as Christian ministers. (coughs) Well, from the Reformers, then, we have learned a huge and unmistakable lesson about essential Christian doctrine. They have clarified and recorded for us the essential message of the gospel and the doctrine of salvation. I want to repeat that. They have clarified and recorded for us the essential message of the gospel and the doctrine of salvation. These five solas, then, are great. is a great way for us to keep the essentials always before us. Let us not enthrone the reformers or the banners that they carried, but let us instead enthrone the Lord Jesus, the living word, and know and understand the truth and principle about him that the reformers clarified so well for us. You understand what I'm saying? and I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, we're not venerating the reformers. We're not even venerating the five solas. (laughs) Okay? We're simply saying that what they did for us was boil down the essentials so that we have a way to think and understand what the essentials are so that we know what the main thing is, so that we keep the main thing, the main thing. Are you with me? It's important, family. It's very, very important. You ask most Christians that you talk to, what what is the main thing of Christianity? Try this. I want you to try this. Talk to people. You know, tell me about your faith. Give them a little bit of rope. (laughs) It's amazing what people will, will begin to tell you, okay? But when you have an understanding of what the essentials are, okay, Man, you, you are, you, man, I mean, the guns are loaded, and you're ready to give them the gospel, man. You're ready to get right to the cross, right to the issues that matter most. Are you with me? And and uh, <clears throat> I'm telling you, it's an extremely important thing. And you can see the fruit of deception that lives in public Christianity, especially American Christianity, Okay? Which, you know, I want to say American Christianity is as corrupt in our generation as the Roman church was in the 16th century. You know, it's just it's just a whole new reinvention of a whole different set of new false doctrines. To do what? To obscure the gospel. To obscure the essentials of the Christian faith. Don't think for one minute that because the church is Protestant that somehow it's pure. And I hope you haven't heard me say that. I don't mean that at all. Our church is only pure to the level or degree that it adheres to the historic, orthodox, and apostolic Christian faith. Not, and not just in word only, but indeed. These aren't just people that are, you know, uh, <clears throat> making a profession of truth, but they're walking in the truth. <laughs> are you with me? It's important. So, <clears throat> The heart of the gospel and the kingdom of God is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Okay? I want to repeat that for you. The heart of the gospel and the kingdom of God is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I, I just have this longing for, for all of us to have this thing so fixed in our mind. When you think about Christianity, what comes to your mind, family? Okay? And, and here's what I'm telling you. The heart of the Christian faith is the person and the work of Jesus. He is the centerpiece of Christian worship. And what he has done is God's work of redemption in creation. And it's the whole point of the history of the world. You with me? When you begin to see your life through those goggles, man, you got new life. Provided you believe it and you love it and you give your life wholly to it. And to the degree that you do, you experience the glory and the joy of it. Amen? The heart of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Is the person in the work of Jesus Christ. He is the center of Christian salvation and the centerpiece of Christian worship. Let us not forget to keep him as the main thing and always keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Let us say with the Apostle Paul, I am determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2 and following. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You hear what Paul's saying? He's saying, this was the heart of my message when I came to you, Corinthians, and preached you the gospel. What was it, Paul? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Right? The person... And the work of Jesus. And that was what Paul was determined to know nothing but. Are you with me? Gives a whole new meaning to what our life as Christians ought to be, where our focus ought to be. Right? You know why your problems are so huge and you can't overcome them? You're focused on your problems. Get your eyes on Jesus. Are you with me? He's way bigger than your problems. Are you with me? That doesn't mean our problems aren't real. And it doesn't mean they don't hurt. Okay? But listen, Jesus is more powerful than our situation is. Far more powerful. Not only that, but when we suffer, He is our healer. When we grieve, He is our consoler. Right? When we're in big trouble, He is our refuge. Right, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run in and they're saved. Are you with me? That's the Jesus we're preaching. We're preaching a Jesus who is our all in all. He's mighty to save. He's everything to us. Family, you ought to be having a conversation 24-7 with Jesus. If you're not, you're missing the abundant life He's offering. I mean, everything I face in life, I'm, I'm crying out to God. Every time my my head hits the pillow, every single night, I'm crying out to God. I'm so grateful for what God has done. My life is in His hands. He's in control. You know, there's all kinds of tossing and waving foams in my life. I'm constantly confronted with fears and doubts and darkness on every side. Right? But I know the guy that speaks peace. He's got power over the storm and I'm in the boat with Him. Are you with me? I mean, take your picture out of the Bible and there's Jesus, mighty to save. Right? He's a refuge. He's a hope. He's a Savior. He's a healer. No matter what your problem is, bring it to Him. Okay? Listen, if He doesn't fix it, He's going to give you everything you need to walk through it. Amen. That's His promise. All the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20 They are yes and amen in Christ. Amen? All the promises. Every last one of them. Amen? You with me? That's the Jesus of the Bible. So let's talk about the elements of justification. The elements of justification. So, okay, we've been talking about justification. We talked about the Protestant Reformation. We talked about what the protest was. We, 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 we boiled down the essentials into the into these five solas, right? And we, we, we examined that as the essentials of the historic and apostolic Christian faith. And, and those help us to get our hands around what justification is, okay? So now I want to talk to you about the nature of justification. I want to talk to you, and this it will get kind of complex. I think it will take us... Um, two weeks, two more weeks to talk about what justification is and then we're going to move on in our outline. But <clears throat> we're going to talk here about what justification is. And when I say the elements of justification, I want you to understand that it's not just one simple thing. Of course, it is one thing and it means one thing. It's a legal declaration by God. Okay? But it has a basis. It has a a nature, it has a work. Okay? And I want to talk to you about what that is so that when you think in your mind justification by faith, and and if you will, you think about salvation, what does it mean? Where do I stand in regard to God and sin? Okay? That you understand that justification is a legal declaration by God concerning sin on the basis of Christ. Okay? And once God, who is the judge, makes that declaration, it's a done deal. You can take it to the bank. Are you with me? And and that's what it is. It's a legal term. Well, in the beginning of the Puritan era, Christians were seeking to continue to define and purify their doctrine and drew up several catechisms and various confessions of faith in order to define the parameters of their faith. In 1646, the Church of England, by the minds and hands of the Westminster Assembly, drew up their own confession, which was called the Westminster Confession of Faith. From this confession, both Baptist and Congregational churches also drew up confessions, which were actually just modified arrangements of the Westminster. Later, the Westminster was officially adopted by the Presbyterians and the Church of Scotland, And so most Protestant branches of Christianity had roots which sprung from the comprehensive confession of faith. From this comprehensive confession of faith. At this time, Christians were also busy writing catechisms to have standards for teaching the faith to future generations. From these efforts, many great catechisms were developed, including one that the Westminster Assembly drew up, which is called the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms, these documents were very helpful in defining many of the different aspects of biblical doctrine, okay, so I showed you before last week, I got this Westminster Shorter, some people don't like the Westminster, I told you, because it's got specific statements about infant baptism and other things that some people don't like, if you don't like the Westminster, then get you a different one, I don't actually use the Westminster, I use the Westminster that's modified by Spurgeon, because he fixes those problems, but the fact of the matter is, is that um, these catechisms, okay, they take us through a systematic teaching of the faith, okay? And um, I, I use this with my family Bible study on Tuesday night. We, the family comes over for dinner, wherever they may be. We eat physical food, and then we eat spiritual food. We get our Bibles out, and we go through the questions in the Catechism line by line, and we read the answers, and we talk about them thoroughly until everybody has a crystal clear understanding of each question and point and answer in the Catechism. Are you with me? Because we got nothing better to do with our time than to sit down and learn the Word of God. Are you with me? Best thing we can do with our time. So... As I'm reading through the catechism in the last few weeks with the family, we come to question number 32. And here it is. What is justification? Answer, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Now, this statement gets right to the heart of what justification, in the biblical sense, really is. It is broken down into four parts as follows. Justification is an act of God's free grace. So, if you will, it's an act of God. It's God's work, given freely, at no cost, to the beneficiary, flowing from the gracious character of God. It's an act of God's free grace. Okay? So, I mean, think about this. Justification is something that God does. Okay? It's not something you do. It's something God does. Okay? So we call it an act of God. Justification is an act of God. But it's not just an act of God. Listen. It's an act of God's free grace. Understand? It's gratuitous. God justifies freely. God justifies freely. And you know what free means, right? Anybody that's ever shopped in America knows what free is. As a matter of fact, if you hang a sign out there and you say free, man, the crowds will flock. Won't they? Right? Who was it, my brothers? <laughs> Tuesday morning, they were giving free Grand Slams over at Denny's. Right? Starts at 6 a.m., right? Okay, so here I am driving to church. Come down the street right by Denny's and I'm, I'm driving by there at 5.59. And I look in the window and there's, there's nobody in there standing there at all, right? So I come in and I meet with the brothers. I say, hey, brothers, let's take our Bible study over to Denny's and get a free Grand Slam and we'll read our books there on the table. And they say, yeah, all right, man. So we pile in the truck and we get out there and we drive over to Denny's across the street, right? We're there at like 609. <laughs> and there's a line coming out the door. <laughs> People know what free is you with me now get this justification in the sight of holy God is free you would think that mankind would be flocking to the door right so nevertheless the church is the church is flocking to the door By heavenly means. (laughs) Amen? But the fact of the matter is, justification is free. It's an act of God's free grace. Because God is gracious, what does that mean? Right? It means He gives favor to those who don't deserve it. That's what it means. It's gratuitous. God is freely giving out of the overflow of his grace and love and favor. Right? It is at no cost to the beneficiary. Justification is an act of God's free grace. I'm going to show you this in the scripture, by the way. So just hold on to your hat there. Wherein he pardons all our sins. It's an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins. Okay? Well, it is a legal or forensic term dealing with law and pardon. You with me? So here's something you need to understand about justification. Justification in the biblical sense concerning salvation is a legal term. It has to do with law, and it has to do with court, and it has to do with the judge, and it has to do with consequence, and it has to do with pardon, and it has to do with guilt. You understand? And when we talk about those forensic terms, we're talking about things that happen at a level of authority, right? So for instance, if you go to court, right? What's being what's happening? Well, <laughs> You're in court for some specific reason. Let's say you're guilty of a crime. Well, the law is being enforced upon you, and you are being taken before who? The authorities, right? And you are going there for a what? A binding decision. Are you with me? And in that binding decision, we're going to get to the bottom, to the brass tacks of what really happened here, and we're going to lay down the law. We're going to enforce the law, right? And that's what's going to happen in this courtroom. So, if you will, when you think of justification, you need to think about it in those terms. It's a legal term. Justification is brought up in the sense of God's judgment, God's courtroom, God's holy justice. Okay, and and that's what uh, justification is. And so, when we at, when we talk about it, when we talk about what God does with His free grace, is He pardons. Now, how many of you know what a pardon is? You know what a pardon is? Guy's in jail, right? Convicted criminal. There he is. He's in jail. And the guy with the power of pardon, you know what he does? He says, I pardon thee. Here's my John Hancock. And you know what that means? The guy in jail goes... Free. You get it? The consequences of the law are no longer <coughs> held against him and binding him in his cell. Instead, the one who has authority lets him go free. understand? Doesn't mean he didn't commit the crime. It just means he's got a pardon. Are you with me? Okay? Well, get this. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins. In Roman terms, it's a plenary indulgence. Are you with me? It means all of your sins. Of course, we don't mean it in Roman terms. We mean it in God's terms in the Bible. And let me tell you, when God justifies somebody, He pardons all their sins. Let me clarify all for you. Past, present, and future. Every last one of them. That's what justification is, family. For which of your sins was Jesus not punished? You with me? You you, you understand where that's going? (laughs) Right? Will God pardon all of your sins but one? Will God give His Son to die and somehow incompletely atone or cover over your sins? I don't think so. Jesus is a perfect Savior. Are you with me? Well, we'll talk more about it next week. With that, let's pray. God, can it be true, Lord, that You can pardon all of my sins? I pray, O God, that You would allow us to see, through the Word, by Your Spirit, what justification means. Lord, as we examine ever so closely what You have written. Let its healing power cure us from the guilt in our conscience so that we are free to worship you. With hearts devoted to you, (coughs) grateful hearts of thanksgiving for what you have done. I pray, Lord, that you would cause these things to be rooted deeply in our hearts, that no devil would deceive us in days to come. But yet, God, on Christ the solid rock we stand. We thank you for all that you have done for us in him. And we honor you and praise you for his holy cross. Amen. Oh, I I keep forgetting. Wait, I keep forgetting. This one's called Not Guilty, James Buchanan, Okay, early 19th century, it is a concise discourse on justification, this one is, um, he's a Princeton guy by the way, early Princeton, good stuff, early Princeton, good stuff, okay, justification by faith alone, this one's by Soli Deo Gloria, it's, uh, it's got like nine, uh, nine different authors, MacArthur, Sproul, Beek, Gerstner, Kistler, all those good guys are writing different articles about justification, okay? Justification by Faith Alone by Soli Deo Gloria Publications.